Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Track. At Track, our aim is to shine a light on the UK running club scene. This week on Track, we have an interview episode where we were delighted to be joined by the newly announced GB selected marathon runner for the European champs, Andrew Hayes. I sat down with Andrew last week and we spoke um, all about his recent performance at the Manchester Marathon, which was about three weeks prior to our chat. And uh, that was Andrew's debut marathon, which he ran 2.13.53, finishing in fifth place, which secured his place for the GB team for those European champs in Munich in August. Um, Andrew has been coached by GB marathon legend Mara Yamauchi since 2021. He runs for Haddamshire, is part of UK Anti-Doping's Athletics Commission, and has recently completed his PhD in the psychosocial aspects of, a- of athletic doping and of doping amongst students. Andrew won the British Indoor 3000 Meter Champs in 2018 whilst being coached by Steve Vernon, spent time in the college system in the United States at Tulsa, and has a wealth of experience in the sport. So it was really nice to sit down with Andrew. Andrew was really open and honest about um, his time in running, his training, his PhD, which he would, he recently completed, and about Manchester Marathon. So uh, really hope you enjoy the conversation with Andrew. Um, some of you may have seen Andrew run this morning in the Vitality 10K in London. Um, so well done to Andrew for that performance. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for tuning in again. We hope you enjoy the interview and we will be back again soon with all our usual stuff. Thanks, guys. Hi, Andrew, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no, it's, it's our pleasure. Thank you very much for giving us a bit of your time. Um, we're talking on a, a Tuesday evening. Um, how's your day been? Has it involved any running? Um, what's it been like today? Um, yeah, it's been pretty pretty relaxed, I'll say. Um, bit of bit of running, uh, hour or so, still making a recovery from, from Manchester and taking things a little bit cautiously. Um, another hour in the gym. Um, and then pottering around with just sort of general life admin and sorting things out at the moment. Okay, um, yeah. okay. We'll, we'll perhaps get into the recovery in, in a bit. Um, so as you mentioned, we're talking about three weeks just over um, from your debut marathon at Manchester. Uh, you mm-hmm. finished in a time of 2.13.53, fifth place, and that subsequently um, secured your place for the GB European Champs um, coming up in, in Munich. Um, so firstly, how has that recovery gone in, in those sort of three weeks between uh, the race and now? And um, how quickly did you get back to running? And, and are you into sessions now? What's that look like the last three weeks? Yeah, it, I've tried to be cautious. I think people who have been through this and, and are far more experienced than I am um, always sort of, yeah, suggested that take care when coming back and don't come back too quickly so I took a whole week off um <laughs> I also had a lot of meetings that week anyway so it's probably tired at the right time um and then I spent a week of just really easy jogging on a grass field on holiday for like 20 to 30 minutes each day okay. um and then last week I started to put a little bit more structure back in um so what would something would, would resemble a normal week for me um and i have done a few sessions but i've, I've been doing my uh, my wife lauren's sessions as well um just just to sort of ease back in and, and help her out so it's a nice opportunity to run with her and um yeah just 
play it cautiously, but um, I think I've had more niggles in the past two weeks than I had in the entire build-up for Manchester. So it's okay. it's learning, I guess, from sort of the the actual um, physiological damage that the marathon can do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's going all right. I don't I I have nothing to compare it to. So um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned your wife, and she's a, an accomplished, talented runner in her own right. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, Lauren was a um, yeah really good GB junior uh, on the cross, um, three thousand meters as well, and she made Euro cross seniors uh, Christmas just gone uh, in Dublin to race to Dublin. So um, yeah, she's she's running pretty well, and we try and run as much together as as possible as we can. Um, bit of a challenge when you've got a baby, but. Um, yeah, uh, transport each other as much as as much as we can. Oh, that's great. Okay, um, so if you look back at Manchester now, there's a couple of congratulations to give you. Actually, first of all, first of all for for that team selection, and we'll perhaps get your a reaction to that. But also <clears throat> for our listeners who may not know, you're just coming to the end, and you've, you've um, by all rights completed your your PhD now. All happened within the the same couple of week period. So. It must have been a fairly busy couple of weeks for you. But looking back at the race, what what are your thoughts, emotions? Now there's been a bit of time in between for you to reflect on. Um, what what did you uh, think of the race? Yeah, uh, it was a busy week. I had my PhD viber on the Tuesday and raced the marathon in the weekend. So I think that was beneficial in that um, it took my mind off that taper, I think, because I was so focused on, I was more nervous with the Viva than I was the marathon, I'll be honest, it was more of a relief and then like, right, I can focus on Manchester. Um, but yeah, I, I took my time to reflect, I think, gave it a few days um, and then just sort of gradually worked through the race um, sort of the sections I can uh, sort of remember and, and, and keep coming back to reflecting on different parts of it. And then I've also reflected on the block as a whole. Um, so yeah, it's, um, there's a variety of different things like I've learned from that and um, like went out with the front group and we were meant to be paced at 66 30 and we went through in 66 so there's sort of question marks over whether that was sensible or not because I the wheels did come off at uh, 23 miles or 22 miles and um, so I did lose an awful lot of time I think I was on for sub 212 until then um so learn stuff about the the back end of the race and, and perhaps what might have been the rate limiting step towards the end of the race um but overall really enjoyed the experience i absolutely loved it love the training uh love the block love just being able to to go out in manchester and race a marathon and i think it's you spend so long focused on that one race and it was a very odd thing to be for me to be doing coming from a shorter distance background to go this is it all of this build up is going into this race and then it doesn't really matter what's after <laughs> just um just see if i can do the job but yeah really pleased from an outcomes perspective in terms of run standard for the commies and the euros and i'm going to go to the europeans um so positives to be taken away from that but i think for me it's, the, it's all the little lessons that i've learned throughout the build-up and, and the different sections of the race in terms of like fueling in terms of okay. um quads perhaps not being as strong as they needed to be um so things that i can take forward and learn into the next into the next block yeah okay you mentioned that you went out with the with the, the main group um and we'll perhaps get on to your your coach um marit yamuchi and and what that looks like in terms of a relationship between you guys but was that always the plan? You're going to go out with the first block, and if that means 66, or if that means 67 through the half, you were just going to go with the first group. 
yeah, that was always always the plan. I think um, without wanting to focus too much on the outcome of trying to make a team, if we did want to make that team, it had to had to commit essentially. Um, so I was pretty comfortable with that, and that sort of made decisions in terms of what marathon race pace was going to be looking like in terms of we knew from quite a long way out that the the pace was around about 66 30 and wasn't really going to change from that um and steve Vernon and tom Gregg craig's pulled together a i mean we couldn't really have got a better group of pacemakers when you've got ben connor charlie hilson and adam craig and um you know them are on the star line you, you know all you i used to train with these guys so i used to just sit behind them and that was job done um so yeah always plan to commit um probably was a little bit quick but when you have committed you try not to think too much about oh my god we're 30 seconds quicker than i wanted to be through halfway and just get stuck into the race at that point but yeah it was always the plan to go to go out with that group great and and was there a moment in the race where it shifted from sitting in the pack obviously the pace has dropped out at some point to either racing those around you or a more focus on uh, finish time or not slowing down as much was there a point in the race where the mind shift the mind shifted from sort of one tactic to the other yeah absolutely it's a great question and um, so ben connor led us into i think about 15 or 16 miles between just before altering him um, well we're aware you raced as well um so just before we got into altering him town center ben dropped out and then it, it sort of we were moving pretty quickly at that point. Um, and then there was a lot of rotation at the front, people picking up drinks and, and just sort of the group was sort of formed and working together quite well. And then we got to about, um, there was a drink station around 20 mile and um, Johnny Mellor put his foot down for, for essentially um, started running 440s, 445s. Um, and I was already on the edge there. Um, so <laughs> I've watched the YouTube video back, the, the recording of the race, and I'm just looking at my watch going, this is too quick, this is too quick. So I made a conscious decision at 20 mile to not go with that. So the group moved away and then actually two or three minutes later, Johnny moves away from the group again and people fall off. Made the conscious decision at 20 miles to think, right, I can run in the last six miles and if I can try and hold between 5.05 and 5.10, then I'll run pretty quickly and it'll be around 212 managed that for another two miles and then pretty much legs fell off um so struggled in the last yeah three miles and lost a fair amount of time but um trying to do the maths 24 or 25 miles deep into a marathon was a bit of a challenge but i sort of roughly knew that i'd be all right with the standards um but it was yeah Conscious decision at 20 miles. I thought I'd hold it together a little bit longer. Um, and that's probably a reflection on how we sort of treated Mara and I treated the build-up in terms of being a little bit undercooked to make sure we made the start line. Um, I'm happy to go into that. But um, yeah, lost lost a fair bit of time in the last two miles. Um, but yeah, it was learnings to take from that, I think. <laughs> sure. And um, was that... From the 20 mile point then was that a fairly solo run um i know there was a little bit of changing of places between then and, and the finish um but it was pretty much a solo effort for those last six miles 10k or so yeah watching people disappear up the road and watching johnny move far smoothly than it's far smoother than i was um yeah it was i did i basically i, I didn't think i could commit to 445 so what he started to drop at 20 miles onwards and his last 10k was just 
brilliant. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty lonely. Um, apart from, I mean, it was the crowds were in and out, like Ramsdale Town Centre. There was, I had um, a few people I knew cheered me on there. So that was quite good. But then it, it got quite quiet when you went back under the M60 um, and then past Stretford, uh, past Longford Park was quite quiet. So it was pretty lonely. And then just trying to keep my head up and look at those in front of me. Um, and Paulos came back. Um, and then I nearly caught Ed Goddard, but um, yeah, there was no sprint finish. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a little bit lonely. Um, and yeah, just trying to focus on getting to that, that line with damage limitation, I think after about 22 miles. Okay. It's, um, it's funny you mentioned Johnny Meadows' final 10K being superb, and actually that was also seen in the women's race, really. Becky Briggs, who won the women's event, her, her 10K was, her final 10K was, was brilliant as well. So I suppose you, you said you got take-homes and, and things to think about. I suppose finishing strong um, must be one of those, I suppose, things to try and do next time, perhaps. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd say Johnny's probably one of the more experienced marathon runners in in, in the UK at the moment. And um, yeah, Becky's was fantastic. It was great to see her to run the standard that she was obviously more than capable of doing for several years from Phenomenal Junior. So it was great to see, and she's obviously in the team at Euros. Um, yeah, I think Johnny Johnny's experience and strength just really showed, and he's been he's been PBing in the half recently. I knew he'd, he'd run pretty pretty well. He was sort of the guy to beat, the one to watch, and. Um, yeah, it's absolutely like looking at the way he did that. He was probably in sub two ten shape in in um, another race. Um, so it's it's an interesting challenge going up against one of the more experienced marathon runners who's in at the top of the game, really. Um, and it's it's great to be able to learn from them as well. Right. And then if we fast forward a little bit to you crossing the finish line, um, what was the immediate? Was it Relief, elation, excitement, a mixture of things. Can you remember? Um, I was looking back on the photos and it's just pure pain on my face. There's no <laughs> there's no excitement. I think you can see that finish. Obviously, appreciate again. <laughs> you can see the finish from a long way out. Yeah. Um, and it was just looking at the clock. There's a lot of clock watching for me. Uh, going, I can get on to 2.14 here. I can, get, I can nail the commie standard. Um, and then cross the line before you've even caught your breath. I had Kelly Southerton and Matt Long going, right, what selection do you want to be put forward for? So you just sort of go, oh, okay, um, commies, Euros, and then perhaps the 50K in the, in that sort of um, exuberance. You're just like, I'll do everything. Um, but then um, my uh, mum and dad, my wife and my daughter were all at the finish line as well. Um, so that was great. Within a couple of seconds, I got to see them um, and just sort of, Compose myself, realised like I'd achieved the sort of minimum goals of, of hitting the standard. Um, and just, yeah, the relief of like, that's done. That week is finished now. The vibe is done. The marathon's done. I can move on and, and sort of um, see where we go from there. So it's, yeah. Then there's sort of the, 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 the interesting thing of going, do I need to warm down? I hadn't even considered whether I need to warm down and very quickly realising that there's no way you're going to be able to run after that. Yeah. Um, so it was a hobbling back to the elite the elite area and um, getting some kit on and getting some food. Yeah, great. And there's some lovely photos actually of you and your daughter at the end there. So it must have been nice to have, have those guys there. Um, we spoke to Naomi Mitchell in our most, most recent interview and um, she spoke about, as you've mentioned, the decision between 
Commonwealth Games, European champs. Um, and Naomi opted for the European champs. Um, and part of her rationale was, is a GB vest perhaps? It's also a team event. Um, what went into decision-making for you? Had you thought about that before or had you not allowed yourself to consider those options? And, and why are we seeing you on the European instead of the Commonwealth? Um, it's a great question. Um, I did sort of spend a little bit of time in the build-up going, do we need to be considering this much? And I had a conversation with Mara about it as well. And it's sort of going, well, actually either one is a huge positive step forward is a the biggest event that I'll be I'll have gone to in my career so um don't worry too much about the decision because you can't really go wrong um when it came to it I think I put myself forward for the Commonwealth Games first um and I looking at the selection I assume the two guys in front of me did as well um otherwise I wouldn't be at the Europeans um so it was sort of weighing up, yes, GB Vest in Munich would be fantastic. And that was like, I am over the moon to be going to that. Um, and it was a very easy sell. But I think the, the lure of having a home games for the Commonwealths, um, being a Birmingham University student, and um, that would have been quite interesting. The, the sort of the course at Birmingham as well, being a little bit hillier. Um, so it being, yeah, it was a really sort of, Part of the build-up, I was like, yeah, I really want to go to the Europeans. Other parts of the build-up, I was like, I really want to go to commies. In the end, decisions made for me, um, but I'm absolutely chuffed to be going to the Euros in terms of being part of this, as Naomi pointed out as well, this, this team environment, the opportunity to win a team medal with the marathon guys um, and girls, um, and just the, the people that are also on that team as well. I'd like... I was at uni with Luke Caldwell and I was in a training group with, with um, Ross Millington. So it's just, uh, I spoke to Steve Vernon afterwards and he goes, you're just going to be on a team with your mates and it's going to be brilliant. So um, no, really looking forward to it. Um, and yeah, never been to Munich. So looking forward to racing around it. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, just as you mentioned it, we'll just, I'm sure our listeners have heard us say it before, but uh, the team for the senior men is uh, Moadan, Luke Caldwell, Ben Connor, yourself, Ross Millington and, and Phil Sessman so a really on paper a really strong team um 15th of August I believe is is the day um mm -hmm. for the the marathon which is about 16 weeks away or so so um we've just been talking about recovering from a marathon when would when will the focused work the build the marathon sessions begin again um towards that sort of 15th of August date is that penciled in at the moment yeah, so I think it's it's around mid-May. Um, so 12-week build-up again that's similar to what we used for, for Manchester. Um, so I've got a fair few weeks um, to just sort of get my legs back, essentially, um, have a little bit of fun helping out Lauren with some sessions. I'm going to race the uh, the London 10,000 on Monday. Um, hopefully it's a bit of a shock to the system without any real expectations. I'll race the Manchester 10K as well. Um, so just try and have a relaxed few weeks of just building some general base before going back into the, if we're going back into a block um, mid-May, I think it's the 23rd of May or something like that. It's a Monday. Um, so yeah, 12 week block and then back into it um, with everything that we've learned from the, the, the first block. So yeah, I'm, I'm 
going to enjoy this next few weeks of just sort of running a little bit easier and not really too focused too much on on mileage or, or trying to hit anything massive but um no i'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting back into the, the, the marathon block as well okay great um well perhaps we could turn to your training a little bit and and um you know i'm conscious you can talk as much or as little about the specific <laughs> like. i know sometimes athletes are sometimes cautious in what they say so that's absolutely fine um but your um your structure your general uh weekly um structure what did that look like going in during that 12 week block um in terms of mileage in terms of sessions and and also are there any major or minor tweaks that you think you're definitely going to implement with your coach in the lead up to munich yeah so i think um I asked Mara to coach me back in, I think it was uh, September or October last year, um, with the with the aim of possibly probably running Seville. Um, it was the initial plan. Um, and we chatted about the structure in terms of working with her, um, in terms of coach-athlete relationship, and sort of it was going to start off as very much like she was going to lead me to problem solve. Um, I was going to write a plan um, and just pull on her sort of wealth of experience i mean it's yeah difficult to find someone who's as experienced and um, as good at the marathon as she was so it's um yeah it was very much sort of i would i would write stuff go to her have conversations but i didn't want to be it wasn't a hand holding i'm going to be speaking to you every day type of thing okay. um which really suited me because i'd had a bit period after seeing new balance where um i was just coaching myself essentially um so the autonomy i really enjoy um but yeah we we talked about the plan um in terms of like i was so new to marathon training that there was a lot of very um sort of naive questions to be asked to to sort of get my head around it in terms of like what should i be doing how many sessions a week and things like that and a few tweaks to to what i've done before and so i think for the first build up for the for Manchester for Seville initially, and then I got COVID in January, so we, we changed plans. Um, so for Seville Manchester build up, we decided that it was probably best to be a little bit undercooked um, in terms of miles um, for several reasons. Um, I hadn't really run above eighty miles since our daughter was born uh, in December twenty twenty. So, so obviously, looking at a block of twelve weeks or nine weeks in a three-week taper um with the highest consistency and highest mileage that i had for probably two years so it was being cautious around that um so we i think i averaged 103 for the nine weeks into the taper um when actually in an ideal world i probably were in close to 115 120 um but i hadn't been anywhere near that for a long time so let's get through this build-up injury-free getting back to a sort of normal normal mileage for me um and then we can look at moving that on for for a future build-up um but basically gets the start line in one piece um and so that meant yeah playing a little bit safe with mileage playing a little bit safe with some of the the bigger marathon sessions as well i wouldn't say i remember having a conversation with someone after the, the, the national cross um martin actually and he said oh what's your next key marathon session and i don't think we ever really penciled in anything that i did would describe as a key marathon session um psychologically i think that helps me as well is that i don't really want to have that focus of this is a really key marathon session that i need to hit i'd rather just have a nine week 12 week 
period of training that I can go, yep, I've ticked off a load of consistent mileage, a load of consistent sessions. There might not be anything absolutely glamorous in there or really anything that's going to get me hundreds of thousands of kudos on Strava, but I don't care because I can look back and say, I'm fit. I know I am. I've done enough work. Um, and then I can learn from all of that moving into the next block. Um, but yeah, it, it's um, a few things like we moved around. My mid, midweek long run used to be on a Thursday. It's now on a Wednesday. Um, I'm doing, I you know, run a lot of my miles quite slow. Um, but I've started to put a little bit, um, some faster sort of progressive runs in there aside from the sessions as well to sort of um, supplement um keeping two sessions a week, which I've been doing since I left the States back in 2013, um, just because I, I could not go back to the old club structure of three sessions a week because it would break me. Um, so two two main sessions a week, a long run, and then a midweek long run that's now Wednesday. Um, and it, it seemed to work. There's a few tweaks going forward in terms of just probably running a fair bit more um, and then making sure that the s is is where it should be because I think that's something that, I probably didn't really uh, push the boundaries on. I, I was very minimal um, throughout, um, probably because I had other obligations in terms of getting a PhD if I ever saw it. But um, yeah, there's there's a fair few things that we've sat down and reflected on um, and talked about like, where can we move things on. So hopefully we're going to get some physiological testing in the next few weeks um, just to get a little bit more of a um, yeah uh, data-driven approach then me purely going off feel <laughs> and so yeah well there's a few things we're going to be looking at that's great that's really interesting thanks Andrew um I'm sure our listeners do know but uh Mara Yamauchi is your coach and she's a GB marathon legend um as you mentioned time of 223 I think now the third fastest GB marathon runner of all time on the female side and also a bronze medalist over 10,000 at the Commonwealth Games so um were there any sort of big things where you you said you said oh this is what I'm planning to do tomorrow and there was a I don't know a sharp intake of breath or was it all fairly sensible when she was in most in agreement most of the time with what you had suggested um <laughs> I think she'd probably say that whenever I send an email tomorrow I think everything's sort of footnoted with if this is rubbish, please tear it to pieces and I'll be comfortable with that. I think as a PhD student, you're used to getting feedback from a supervisor going, this needs to improve, this is not good, this, this needs to change. So I'm quite comfortable in terms of if someone needs to rip something to pieces and say, this is, you're going down the wrong avenue here, then I'm not going to take offence to that. And I'd rather just learn. And um, so having Mara's feedback, and she's, she's yeah, she's been great. Um, one, of the, one of the things that stands out is I really wanted to run cross this year. Um, so whether that cross country should really fit in terms of a marathon buildup is a bit of a question mark in terms of injury risk and things like that. But I was sort of, no, I wanted it in there. Um, so I did the Yorkshire's Northerns and Nationals um, this year. And like, there's learning from that in terms of, I was absolutely wrecked at the Northerns because I'd run a half marathon the week before and hadn't tapered for the Northerns. And it sort of hit my confidence because I didn't really run as well as I sort of hoped. But then looking back on it, you go, well, it was the back end of a 105 mile week or 110 mile week. Um, never really was going to run that well because I was in a heavy block of training. So um, yeah, it was always my desire to, to go and run the cross because I hadn't done it for a fair few years. I enjoyed just pure racing. Um, and I thought cross was going to give me that. Yeah, there's, there's a few things that I probably, 
if Mara was right, the plan wouldn't have been in there. Like I, I ran Battersea under the lights 5k as well, which is probably not conducive to marathon training, but it was a great um, sharpener for me to just sort of wake up the body. Um, so there's a few things in there that are probably not that traditional, but it's just me experimenting and, and, and learning from that and then just taking that forward. So yeah, and it's so early on in in a sort of our relationship as a coach and athlete trying to work things out, and it, everything's been done uh, distance wise as well. In terms of she's based down in London, I'm up north, so a fair few phone calls and just um, yeah, learning about each other. But um, no, it's really happy um, with how things have gone. And like I said a few, a few minutes ago, there's there's no one better to really just um, have in your corner in terms of experience wise. Absolutely. Um, I was going to ask you actually about build-up races because you, you did cross country, as you said, and the, the half was in Farnborough in January, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I looked at that and thought, oh, maybe not many build-up races, but I suppose, um, <laughs> was, was that a, a conscious decision? Um, but I suppose with the cross being in those big mileage weeks, it probably was enough racing in the build-up, is, is, was, was presumably your thinking? Again, yeah. Yeah. Um... I'm so inexperienced in the marathon. I probably don't know what replicates, what looks like a, a lot of races and what doesn't. Um, like looking at the, the build-up into um, the Europeans, there's, there's far fewer races in the draft at the moment because there just isn't the many that many road races in the summer, understandably, because I don't think many people want to run a half marathon in July. But um, yeah, it's, um, it's striking that balance, I suppose, with the races that you want to... Um, not taper for but ease down a little bit for and, and try and run us a, a, a quick time and knows that you feel like you can train through um and I sort of I took very much the approach of I, I wanted to train through the vast majority of the races in, in the block so it, it probably meant that I was a little bit tired going into a fair amount of them um eased down a little bit for the national cross because it's the national cross and yeah it's going to take some time to recover from anyway so I wanted to do my best 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 chance to run well there but also um yeah to, to recover quickly after that um yeah it, i'm trying to think, i can't remember, actually remember how i raced the 10k as well um so yeah there's a there's, there's a 10k that's not on power of 10 because i don't think it was licensed um so um yeah I, i'm open to to advise particularly from Mara in terms of how often to race and when and when not to but um yeah learn a lot from from those experiences okay and just the last thing I suppose on on the build or just before the build at the sort of the back end of last year you did a couple of halves um so the Sheffield half and the big half in London at yeah. September time for the big half and uh 63 for the London uh race finishing fifth and then winning the Sheffield half um in 66 so did that give you confidence knowing that um i suppose at the time seville was on the cards that you were you were in good shape and about to embark on this marathon block yeah so it was a weird situation last summer because i was coaching myself at that point but i was i was mixing racing fell races with trail races with 5k's with i ended up doing a beach 10k in down in um hail in um cornwall the week of big half and that was probably the hardest thing i've ever done um it was miserable but uh went into the big half because i just thought you know what it looks great great event and i've spoken to scott overall at the essex 10k and he said oh they're still an elite uh 
still open for release if you want to race it. So I was like, okay, yeah, well, I'll throw my name into the hat and see what happens without any real specific structure training for the big half. Ran that and thought, oh, okay, that went relatively well. Maybe maybe there is hope for me at the longer distances rather than just seeing myself as a 3,000 metre runner. Um, so I think the positive experience of the big half um, sort of fueled the decision to go, right, I do actually fancy a marathon because I think it it's always at the back of your mind. But I didn't think it was going to be this soon. Um, Sheffield half 66. Sheffield is one of the hilliest places in the country. Um, It is a odd half marathon. You are 10k uphill, entirely uphill. And then I think my last 10k was 29 flat running downhill. And that ended my season because it trashed my quads. It was a great event because I'm, I'm from Sheffield. So it was fantastic to actually get out. It was a lovely day as well. Fantastic to actually get out and race in Sheffield. Um, but I think that 66 as well taught me that actually, yeah, this is a real possibility because I, if I can run that fast around Sheffield, then actually a solo as well, there might be hope for me in the marathon. Um, then obviously this summer had presented such a huge opportunity in terms of the world's commies and Europeans and knowing that you can't really double or triple the marathon, there was going to be opportunities in the marathon from a selections perspective. So the initial plan was looking at Seville because it was just before the world's deadline. So if everything went to plan and I had the debut of my life, there would be a shot at running 2.11.30. So I I had started the build-up in in, uh, late November, I think, um, getting ready for Seville, but it was just beset with all sorts of issues, illnesses, rubbish weather um then covid so uh, after catching covid in january i just was like no i need i need a little bit more time i can't just go into seville so gave reset gave me another 12 weeks to run into manchester um and really comfortable and confident that we made the right decision yeah perfect okay great thanks andrew um we changed sort of gear a little bit now and um it'd be remiss of us not to talk about um your 3000 meter um, days and your 3000 meter British champ um, title at the time, I believe, being coached by Steve Vernon. Um, so I suppose looking back at that title um, in 2018, I believe it, that just must be a, I don't know, a sense of pride and I suppose a lifelong sense of pride. I assume. How how do you look back on that that win and that that um, that title? Yeah, I mean it's up there in terms of. Um... <laughs> That's one of our proudest moments in terms of athletics and um, stands out. Like obviously the, the marathon and being able to go to the Europeans is now really high up there, but winning a British title and winning the British title in Birmingham, uh, while a Birmingham student in the 3000 after finishing second the year before in Sheffield. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I, 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 it's just a brilliant, brilliant memory, brilliant race. One of the, uh, probably one of my better executed races um, in terms of we had a plan of what we wanted to do and went and did it. Um, I then ran and ran the world standard the week after, but it was outside the uh, the window for selection for the worlds. So went and ran 7.51 in Glasgow and felt on top of the world. Um, so it's just unfortunate that I wasn't get to go to the worlds, but um, yeah, really proud of that. Um, and uh I know I've done well in a race when I get a text saying well done from my father-in-law, who's probably one of the harshest critics. He's a runner himself, but he's only sent me two texts 
Server say well done, and that's ones after the British champs and ones after Manchester, so they must be the ones that stand out. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's absolutely up there, and um, yeah, with Steve at that point, everything was just clicking into place in terms of the training of the group, um, training a lot with Ben Connor at that point, who was getting ready for I think it was the period where he went and ran really quick over half in Barcelona and went to the world half, and was just yeah, um, yeah, just got engaged. It was just a great period <laughs> of life at that point, but yeah. Happy memories. And um, I suppose being coached by Steve, is there anything that stands out about Steve as a coach? Um, he's obviously had loads of success and continues to. Um, what makes him, uh, I don't know, what did you, what did you find to him to be a good coach? Um, I learned a huge amount and, and a, a lot of that has um, sort of formed my own philosophy. Um I don't particularly like referring to it as that. It just feels a bit, yeah. But um, a lot of lot of what I learned on Steve has just carried on into how I've structured the marathon. I think a lot a lot makes sense to me um, in terms of this. The uh, basically the desire to make aerobic beasts um, just get really strong aerobically and 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 strength being speed, and that that showed in all the PBs I ran under Steve in that my 1500 meter PBs under Steve, and I didn't do any speed work. We just did it all off strength work training for 5000 meters um yeah the, the new balance team setup was was fantastic in terms of the opportunity that i had uh and, and lauren to to train under steve and, and with the group that they put together in terms of ben connor johnny and um and ross and we had charlie holson for a little bit as well and he's back in the fold and, and adam cray towards the end so you just had a great group of guys and girls just being part of a professional setup um i think the challenge for me was the fact that i, I was doing my phd at the same time and um, running was not something that I could ever have considered doing full time. I just didn't possibly quite hit that um, decision that some people make in terms of the I hate the term, but the all in concept of I am just going to run and that is it. That's all I'm going to do. I couldn't have done that. I needed something else in my life. And that probably held me back a little bit in terms of fully ingraining myself into the team. Um but Lauren and I, Lauren's a junior doctor. I was finishing off the PhD, trying to finish off the PhD. Um, we just we wanted to do other things as well. Um, so that's that's probably the, the one thing I learned is that actually when I stepped away, I was probably a little bit burnt out um, back in 2019. But it gave me time to sort of um, find love of the sport again and and um, finish the PhD and uh, and just sort of take everything I've learned from Steve and and, and sort of play around with it and then and then move into the marathon um but yeah i mean it's really exciting that, that steve is moving into the position that he is at british athletics in uh, uka um i think it's it, it's going to do wonders for british distance running especially with chris jones there um sort of leading on the philosophy there um it's just really exciting to see young coaches that are coming through at the moment as well um like i spoke to tom Christ for the first time past, past couple of weeks in manchester and just really impressed with the work he's doing as well so it's it, it's really exciting that's good to hear. Okay, well, let's um, let's talk about your PhD for a second, if you don't mind, Andrew. You might be sick of talking about it by now, <laughs> um, but yeah. it, it certainly seems relevant to you know our uh, our conversation. Um, so, correct me if I'm wrong, but your your research is focused on either the psychosocial or the moral boundaries and rationalization of athletes who make a decision to dope, cheat, whatever you want to call it. Um, you're probably sick of this question. I know having been there myself, but are you able to give us a brief overview of like what the objectives were going forward? And 
your main findings of that <laughs> you came out with, I guess. That sounds like a hard uh, question, I know. But, um... Oh, no, yeah, cheers for that. It's the first question you get asked, isn't it? Um, yeah, so um, it, I should say it's not just it's not just athletes um, I was looking at. Um, it's um, students as well, and, and this is where it comes into it, that we were looking at um, individuals that performance enhance in a variety of different contexts so one of those is athletes in sport another one is students in education who can performance enhance through taking um basically stimulant medication so Adderall, Ritalin and Modafinil um and we were looking at when an individual sort of engages in this behavior how do they morally justify that choice because there's normally mechanisms that would prevent us from doping essentially so feelings of guilt, feelings of shame. How does an individual avoid that? And so we were looking at, um, as a uh, Albert Bandura's theory of moral disengagement, which is several mechanisms that allow an individual to basically avoid self-sanction. Um, so we avoid these feelings of guilt, these feelings of shame and, and engage in the behavior. Um, so these are things like um, diffusion of responsibility. So seeing everyone around you doing it or perceiving the that everyone around you is doing it and the amata in, in cycling stands out in terms of late 90s early 2000s everyone's doping therefore i need to dope otherwise i'm not going to be able to compete um then things like moral justification where i need to I, if i dope i can win races i can earn money i can support my family so seeing sort of the moral side of, of, of how your sort of behavior can um sort of help others um and um things which have in implicit pleasure explicit pressure i i'm in a culture where doping is prevalent or i'm under pressure to dope um and athletes sort of make those decisions that actually if i want to stay in the sport then i have to toe the line um so there's a variety of different mechanisms that allow people to do that but the the, the sort of um i suppose the the um the findings were that basically Students that, that use uh, cognitive enhancing drugs and study drugs, for want of a better word, show very similar uh, mechanisms to those who dope in sport, um, which is really interesting. But then also led me down this fascinating, for, but also really frustrating uh, philosophical discussion and ethical discussion about, well, doping is banned in sport, cognitive enhancers aren't banned in education. It, it all gets a bit murky when you're trying to compare the two. Um, but it's been really interesting. And um, as part of the PhD as well, I've had the opportunity to like, conduct research with UCAD, uh, UK Anti-Doping. Um, I sit on a committee at WADA now as well, looking at social science research. Um, and that's some of the sort of, I suppose, more interesting stuff related to sports. So with UCAD, I've been able to like uh, help um, collect data on the, these like really quite extensive projects with elite athletes looking at how you define clean sport and what clean sport means to athletes and what are normal clean sport behaviors and what people see as the future of anti-doping and things like that so yeah it, it's opened a fair few doors um in terms of opportunities after um so it i'm glad to see the back of it because it just it hangs over you and appreciate you've done one as well but it's it never felt like I had a holiday it was always there in the background but I've been a student since I was an undergrad in 2008 so it's taken a long time to get okay done and finished yeah that's fascinating honestly it sounds really really interesting um I read that um and I don't know how connected it is to you actually going on to study it but um I read that your 
when you saw what happened to Hattie Archer, latterly Hattie Dean, um, who for our listeners who may not know, was a steeplechaser and in 2010 finished fourth place at the European Champs. And I believe that subsequently all of the three athletes ahead of her um, were banned um, for, for doping. So, I mean, how much of an impact did that have on you? And I suppose a follow-up question is, did your thoughts, opinions, feelings change any throughout your, your study? Um, I'm, I'm thinking beforehand, you, you know, cheating's always wrong, doping's bad, should never do it. Did, ever, did those feelings ever change or, or um, alter during your, your study at all? He's firing the Viva questions at me now. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, Hattie Dean, as she was at the time, was uh, training at Hallamshire when I was started running at 13. Um, so my first sort of experiences of coming down to the, the group at Hallamshire, coached by uh, Keith Whitelam, um, was training a little bit with, with Hattie. And at that time, there was an English schools medalist called Abby Wesley, who was a phenomenal talent and went to the world in Osaka. Um, so I had them in my training group. So I just I looked up to them in terms of mm-hmm. these guys were phenomenal athletes and I wanted to do what they were doing. Um, so I've always looked, always looked up to Hattie Dean and um, Hattie Archer now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because sometimes people say, oh, what's the direct impact on yourself in terms of competing against dopers? And I can't actually really think of any times where I've actually come into contact where actually I've missed out on a final or something like that or missed out on prize money where other athletes can do. So I think the the, the Hattie sort of example in, in 2010 at Barcelona, that really stood out because obviously I'd seen how hard she'd worked for eight to 10 years mm. to get to that level and how... Um, dramatic it would have been for her to win a silver or gold at Barcelona at that point um, it's like a, a pretty much golden era of British, British running at that you had Ennis you had Greg you had uh, Mo at that point um, and Di Green and people like that but she, she'd be up there in that higher echelon of the, the elite so it was it's hard to see when, when that happens um and I, I think she's got the silver at the moment i don't know whether she'll get the golden at the end but um yeah to be promoted to silver after being fourth it just needs to be so bittersweet um to miss out on miss out on the podium miss out on that moment but also any years of subsequent funding that might have been um any changes that you have to make to your training because you think you have to run harder or train harder to compete with those people thinking that um that's the standard you need to hit when actually they're taking drugs. Um, so yeah, it's, that's what stands out to me most because it, it's obviously quite a personal connection for being a Hampshire Harrier. Um, as for what the PhDs changed in terms of opinions, um, I don't think my opinions changed dramatically to do with sport, probably more so in education. I think that's a far more nuanced area um, in terms of uh, students using, using drugs to performance in hands. I think, you often see this um I'll, I'll be sure because it's not how relevant but um, in the media about students taking drugs to to get to get first essentially to 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 um to performance enhancement education when actually that's not really the case they're probably taking uh, stimulant medication to uh, deal with academic pressures in terms of trying to to cover a lot of work in a short space of time um so i think there's a far greater um student welfare issue um student well-being issue and um yeah, it, I probably wouldn't hit 
the uh, the nail of cognitive enhancers in education with the same hammer that's used in in, um, in sport. I think it needs to be far more nuanced in terms of harm reduction. Um, that's right. what I think. So yeah, really fascinating. Thanks, Andrea. Appreciate you going through that for us. Um, I'm conscious of time. Um, this is going to sound like a really open-ended question, and um, but I, I, you mentioned that you spent some time in America at Tulsa, I believe, mm -hmm. um, for two or three years. Um, how was your time in the USA? Um, how did you find the running culture compared to what you'd experienced before in, in the UK? And uh, do you look back with fond memories? Yeah, um, it's interesting one in that at that point I was, I was a, an undergrad medic and I needed to get away from medicine because I realized I didn't want to do it. Um, or I was really struggling with that at that point. And Tulsa came along and offered me a scholarship to, uh, to do a business degree. And I thought, oh, fantastic opportunity to, to see where I can take my running while sort of taking a break and working out if I actually wanted to do medicine long-term, obviously I'm not. So I probably made the right decision. Um, but yeah, Tulsa came along and at that point, Chris O'Hare had just finished second at the NCAAs indoors. Um, and I was like, at that, I was definitely seeing myself as a 1500 meter runner. So that was the, the immediate sell was to go train with Chris. Yeah. Um, and so I was out in the States with Chris um, and learned a huge amount. Um, we had a great setup in terms of the British distance runners we had. John Beatty had been out there previous to me. Um, Tom Marshall, the Welsh 1500 meter runner, was out there at the same time as I was. Um, Natasha Cochram, who uh, is running pretty well over the marathon for Wales. In my second year, Mark Scott turned up. Um, so we just had this basically conveyor belt of really high quality distance runners that were um, running together. It's not the most inspiring place in the States, Tulsa, Oklahoma, but it, for whatever reason, um, they get something right in terms of the distance running. I was injured for a fair bit of it, um, but still learned an awful lot. That's when I switched from the three sessions a week to the two sessions a week. Um, and do do look back on it with really fond memories and still in touch with Chris and Mark. Um, and it's been great to see the sort of the levels that they've reached. Um, yeah, so it's it's fantastic because I, I think I've been blessed with the opportunity to train with some really high quality athletes throughout my, my, my career um, and learn from each of them in different ways. Um, but yeah, I suppose looking back on it, it probably would have been nicer to be in a slightly more glamorous location. But um, yeah, it, it did the job uh, and it was a good business school as well. So. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, Andrew, listen, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. So if you don't mind, we'll just finish with some quick fire questions that we often fire at our, um, our, our guests. Um, OK, so we'll kick off with the first one we ask everyone. If you could go for a run with any sports person, dead or alive, who would it be? I should really say my wife, shouldn't I? Lauren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Depends there we go. Person, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So if it's any sports person, uh, that broadens it out from running. Uh, like I look up to Roger Federer, it'd be amazing. I just think he's the absolute class act. So just the opportunity to, to run and pick his brains about his approach to sport would be fascinating. Okay, that's great. Um, if you could go back in time to witness any sporting event live, which one would you choose? Oh, oh God. Um... As an Oxford graduate, I probably should say Bannister's four-minute mile. I think that that looked absolutely mad. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to play it safe and say yeah, Bannister's four-minute mile would have been a brilliant event to be to be at. Probably not, never a bad choice, um, I'm sure. Okay, if you could be a professional athlete in 
and a, a sport aside from running or a top level athlete in a sport aside from running which would you choose tennis I think that's pretty um individual sport again I, I do like taking that responsibility um and having that autonomy as well um but I think yeah tennis would be to be a good tennis player would be pretty special yeah, sounds good um what was your post-marathon race or post-race meal perhaps something that you don't always have but a bit, a bit of a treat post-marathon what did we have oh we had pizza that night but i mean like yeah it wasn't i think we didn't there wasn't anything that i was really craving like i had to have i probably just smashed a lot of easter egg chocolate that last that week afterwards um prior to easter but uh yeah i'm trying to think what stood out um yeah fair amount of wine as well um and do you have any pre-race um superstitions rituals or any particular music that you like to listen to pre-race or pre-session to um to get yeah i think previously when i was a lot younger i used to have all sorts of superstitions mm-hmm. um and as i've got older i've tried to get rid of most of them i've gone that's nah, irrelevant like i used to admit like i need to, I, you always used to have to shave the day of a race but i realized that's not you don't have time to do that in the morning of a marathon um so no I, I think i've got rid of most of them and then i stopped running with music a fair few years ago um just because i'd rather just yeah not um but uh, maybe i should get back into that and see if that makes any difference but um no there's, there's nothing that stands out in terms of pre-race superstitions okay. and uh, most importantly are you a split shorts or a half tights man <laughs> so the uh, the only time i think i've raced in half tights was my gb debut and that was because it was in budapest and it was about minus seven or something like that and I was on split shorts on the start line and I realized that was not appropriate so I ran back into the tent and got some half tights I think that might be the only time I've ever raced in half tights so split shorts Angie thank you very much for your time Um, it was a really fascinating interview Um, we wish you the best of luck going forward first of all for Monday um, and then sort of towards your build-up over the summer and and towards those European champs and hopefully you get another uh, text message from your father-in-law because that's <laughs> a good uh, so thanks for your time Andrew and we wish you all the best of luck no thank you very much Ben